we trust that uh, this will become part of your, your weekly routine. Um, we'll be running these webinars every Thursday from four to five. Um, the topics will be shaped by, by what comes up in our conversations and the, and, and the elements that you guys raise is important um, and, and whatever's uh, developed over the week since we spoke last. Um, we'll have different panelists. Um, uh, Lani will anchor this and, and bring in whoever, whichever experts we need to, to, to address the, the burning issues. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, so we want to walk this journey with you. Um, and uh, we're going to plan at least the next four uh, webinars. Um, after to today's webinar, we're actually going to regroup tonight. We'll post the next webinars up on our website. I think you guys can see that uh, to register for upcoming webinars, easymed.solutions. Um, just go there. Uh, you'll see which ones are coming up, and you'll be able to click and register there as well. Um, so, so yeah, thanks for joining us, and, and thanks for being part of this, this journey as we, as we navigate ourselves out of lockdown um, and uh, into a new norm. I don't think we're going to be pushing the reset button and going back to how things were before, um, but that can form part of our conversation, and, and we'll try and unpack what, what the world looks like post-COVID post and, and, and lockdown as well. Yeah, I mean, I... I think you're right, Dion, and, and, and afternoon, everybody. Thank you for, for having me. I mean, I'm, I'm generally in quite the privileged position because I get to work with practitioners this side of the globe and then, um, and then in the US. So, and it's really great because I get uh, perspectives from both sides. And I mean, for me, I've been involved in, in telemedicine for a long time. And I, I mean, I know how everybody feels out there. It's, it's daunting. Um, you know, the, and, and I have to tell you, I think we've moved on from the question that I'm about to pose, but the, the question that I hear a lot is, you know, is, is telemedicine going to be around post COVID-19 or is this just for now? You know, I think we way beyond that. Um, you know, there's this, the, the, the platforms that have come out, um, the solutions, et cetera. And the, you, there's no doubt that practitioners out there are spoiled for choice right now, but it makes it extremely complex because the question has to be, if I'm going to adopt this into my practice, what platform do I use? What are the questions that I should be asking of the solution provider that I know is going, that is going to give me the right answer and put a solution into my practice that's going to be for the long term? And, and that is, I think, what practitioners are, are surrounded by right now. But I have to tell you, this is just the most exciting time. It is so exciting for, for telemedicine. It is so exciting. And I mean, for me, and I, I think you can see I'm passionate about this, but I have seen practitioners that have adopted telemedicine in the last two or three months and have had absolutely no change to their revenue whatsoever because they've used telemedicine in an efficient and effective way. Um, and we've been very lucky to be able to guide them and assist them on, on how to do that. But um, I mean, it is so exciting right now. And, and folks, if there's one thing I can tell you, and, and if there's one thing I can leave you with this afternoon is that telemedicine isn't going anywhere. Telemedicine is as old as the telephone. <laughs> and, and that is the truth. You know, I often come across practitioners that say, well, telemedicine is probably not something that I would adopt into my practice. Mm -hmm. And I pose the simple question, yeah. when was the last time you spoke to your patient via email or telephone or WhatsApp? And I said, oh, goodness me, I, I'm plagued by this on a daily basis. That, folks, is in essentially is telemedicine. It's a dangerous form of telemedicine mm -hmm. because, um, you know, it's, there's generally no record, no security, etc. But that is telemedicine. But it is so exciting. Yeah. And, and I'm hoping to answer some of the questions this afternoon in terms of what should I be looking for in a, in a platform? What are the questions that I should be asking? Mm. Neil, if I, can, if I can just add to that is I think the challenge is you might be engaging in telemedicine um, but very often that's a patient to your personal cell phone or email address. 
Um, and WhatsApps is to your personal uh, number usually. Um, yeah. and, and that's a challenge is how do you separate the professional relationship to a personal one? Um, how do you ensure that you're keeping hours, that, you, that you're managing informed consent, um, and that, you, that you're following the rest of the ethical requirements um, while you're giving out your personal information? And that's, that, I think, is a trap that I think many are falling into um, and, and struggle to, to undo that. It is. And I mean, I, I speak with practitioners on a daily basis and I can't tell you the amount that I see that that have their own personal cell phone and they have a second cell phone yeah. um, that they use for WhatsApp. And I'm guaranteed out of the 446 people out there, there's at least a few saying, I know exactly what you're talking about because <laughs> that's what happens. And yeah. I have to tell you, it's so hard to get those people out of that uh, habit of WhatsApping and emailing, etc., because what has generally happened is that you've created this environment of giving away free clinical information mm. um, because you know you don't charge for WhatsApp. So your patients right. you expect to be able to send a WhatsApp at any time that suits them in an environment of an expectation of no payment. Yeah. Yeah. This is so frustrating for practitioners. And I think, yeah. I think that um, certainly in the, in the last couple of years, I think we've come up with really sustainable solutions for that. Um, you just need to find them and, and know what they are. But Neil, before you carry on, Dion, if I can maybe ask you a question. Wasn't yeah. the HPCSA and the allied HPCSA against telemedicine or telehealth? Mm -hmm. What's changed? Um, so, so I think it's, it's quite complex. And I, I was watching this with a lot of humor because um, the first, the first uh, uh, regulator that came out with a position or, or a, a revised position in the face of COVID-19 um, uh, uh, pandemic was the allied HPCSA and great congratulations to them. Um, they came out with a very, very uh, well thought through amendment to the current uh, regulation to say that in the face of this crisis, we need to do things differently. Mm. Um, they in fact went, went on, I think it was on the 24th of March where they came out and said, um, we are allowing tele telehealth um, and uh, we also uh, uh, um, uh, making sure that that's available not only to patients who are established, uh, who have an established relationship with the practice, um, but also new patients to the practice. Because if you consider how you're going to be managing COVID and, and possibly doing triage and so on, it, it might be patients that, yet, that aren't known to your practice yet. And we all need to step up and, and be part of the solution. So that was their position. And not to be outdone, the HPCSA followed a day later and, and said, we're happy tele, telehealth is, 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 is permissible now. They've had um, their telemedicine guidelines, booklet 10, uh, out for, for going on five years now. Um, and, uh, and, and that booklet did empower telemedicine. Um, but Lonnie, the difference there was they were saying that you could have a consulting uh, practitioner um, yes. who's dialing in to the actual treating practitioner who's with the patient. All so right. your telemedicine, that was the word they were using then, was actually between two healthcare professionals um, assisting a patient. So that was typically for things like a second opinions or getting a specialist to give some advice to a GP that's working in a primary healthcare environment. Um, so the HPCSA came out and said, firstly, we want to coin the word telehealth, which is all encompassing um, and includes things like telepsychology, telepsychiatry and so on. And, 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 and they used the word telehealth more broadly. Yes. Um, but they were happy with that. But they said it's only the psychologists and the psychiatrists that can see new patients. For the rest, it's only on existing patients uh, of the practice. Um, and then a, a few days later, they had to redo that. There was a lot of pressure um, from, from various uh, disciplines, associations, and societies. And they then uh, published a, a new release to say, fine, you can do this with new patients that aren't known to the practice. Um, but be sure you follow all the other ethical regulations. And I think I read somewhere that the South African Council for Social Services, the, the professionals there, they also um, has a guideline out. Yeah. 
Yeah, they came out uh, quite a bit later in April only with their guidelines. Um, and, th and they've coined the phrase uh, e-social work. Um, so they're also empowering social, uh, social workers to, to, to work in the, in the telehealth space. Um, uh, they've got quite a detailed document about how we go about that. I haven't picked up are there, if there's any social workers on this call, um, but I think it would be important to have a dedicated session on that should it be required. Then we can get some panelists to speak about mm -hmm. the social work specific environments. Um, because yeah. they're not only operating in a healthcare space, but under under social welfare as well. Definitely. Neil, one of the questions that came up that I saw is that um, medical schemes might only pay for telehealth during the lockdown period. Can you elaborate on that? So I think it almost speaks to the uh, the first question, which was, you know, is, is telehealth going to be around post-COVID-19 post anyway? Uh -huh. Um, I think it's, I mean, this is my personal opinion, but I, I think it's going to be very hard to put the genie back into the bottle. Mm. Um, you know, they, we are doing thousands of consultations on a, on a daily basis. Um, there is no doubt that the adoption of telehealth around the world mm. uh, has saved lives. And, and I, I also have to make this clear. It's almost as if telemedicine is something completely new and it only started you know when when the lockdown happened this is not the case at all people have been doing telemedicine not even you know, and 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 i already spoke about uh, whatsapps etc they have been using formalized platforms long before for covid19 mm -hmm. for them this is just another day in the office it really is they've been using it forever and they've adopted it into their practice and they've adopted it in a in in, in the best way possible but i think um i think that what will happen and this is my belief is that um and we just don't have enough time, and, I, and this should be probably another, another session, but just to unpack the impact that telehealth has on medical scheme and the way that the reserves are utilized, just by way of preventing things like delayed care, et cetera. Um, my strong suspicion is that medical schemes will continue to, to fund these um, in, a, in, a, in a regulated way, you know, because there are certain concerns that schemes have, but... Sure. In, a, in a regulated way, and they can they can uh, control this via benefit design, etc. But I believe that they will continue to fund it post COVID nineteen. So sure, they continue to fund it. Sorry, Dion, for just interrupting mm. you there. Um, Christy, I'm sure there's a lot of healthcare practitioners that's that's sort of you know raising their eyebrows and like yes. what about their malpractice insurance? Are they covered? Yes. Are they not covered? Are there certain conditions that will be covered? Can you maybe shed some light on that, please? Okay, certainly. If you don't mind, I'm going to share. I'm going to try. Bear with me, everybody. I'm a technophobe. I don't know how many of you all watching this are also technophobes. This is really pushing the limits of us learning how to do things. So I'm going to share something. But something for those people that Neil mentioned that carry around two phones. I recently discovered that apparently you can get a cell phone that takes two different SIM cards. And you can actually make uh, business calls of both. You can have one for personal and one for business. I thought that was really interesting because I know there's a lot of people that carry around too. So I'm just quickly going to try and share my screen. Bear with me. Um, right. Uh, can everybody see that screen all right? Yes. All right. Okay. So now I've got to remember how to move this table out of the way of the words. Okay. So when we're talking about li liability insurance aspects relating to telehealth and COVID, um, it goes without saying that in the time of Corona, obviously your liability landscape has changed. 
uh, somewhat and continues to change as the, uh, as the situation develops. Um, what am I talking about when I'm talking about liability? Insurance brokers and lawyers seem to have a tendency to um, use certain words and we, we assume everybody understands them. Um, I don't know if it, was, if it was Dion or Neil who mentioned this. One of the big impacts that we've obviously seen is the impact on cash flow. So a lot of people obviously phoned us, the CFP brokers saying, listen, uh, what about loss of income? Is that covered under my medical malpractice policy? What we need to be very clear about when I'm discussing liability with you is liability insurance, your medical malpractice and your public liability, that covers your liability to other people. It doesn't cover um, your own losses. That, that would be a completely separate issue. So has insurance changed to keep up with the new landscape? Um, well, one of the first things that we saw was a complete scramble by insurers. We, you know, obviously a lot of people were on the phone, especially with regard to travel insurance. I'm really sorry. I know that there's probably a lot of people out there that probably had travel plans for this year, which you've had to cancel. You've probably looked into, you know, wh whether the travel insurance would assist you. And there's been a huge scramble by the insurers, the underwriters, because this is basically an unprecedented situation mm -hmm. as to how they were going to deal with it. So what a lot of them have done um, is if they didn't have an infectious diseases exclusion on their policies in the first place, they have subsequently put one in there. Um, so that's one of the first things, please, that you need to be aware of. Uh, a lot of the people that may be watching may be covered under CFP brokers wording. And obviously, you know, I will talk to that. But even if you're not covered under CFP brokers wording, if you go and have a look at your own wording, you're very likely going to see something that looks like, I hope this is on the next screen. I don't know how to move the, the screens. Maybe Andre, can you help me if I want to go to my next slide? Oh, there we go. So this is on the CFP broker's wording. And you would find something that looks pretty similar. So this was in place even before um, COVID-19. And the reason that this would have come into place was obviously when HIV was, was a big thing and it came in. And it, it, your exclusion under your policy would look something pretty similar. And it basically says this policy does not cover liability arising out of any loss, damage, cost or expense, directly or indirectly arising out of contributed to by, you know, the insurers love their words as do lawyers or resulting from any infectious epidemic pandemic, etc. So please be aware, that's one of the first things, and perhaps when advantage of telehealth comes in. You know, a lot of people have been contacting us, let me try and move the slide, you know, what does this mean for me? So a lot of people have been contacting us saying, so if one of my patients now alleges that they've caught COVID-19 at, you know, at my practice, will my medical malpractice insurance respond to cover that? And the answer obviously is no, because there is a blanket exclusion on anything to do with COVID-19. And that is also regulatory bodies. If there's a complaint to the Health Professions Council, perhaps that you saw someone during a lockdown stage and you shouldn't have seen them, um, you know, that, that sort of thing is just not going to be covered. Um, okay, so sorry, I'm getting into play. Christy, sorry for interrupting. Can I ask you, what about if you do a telehealth session with someone in a different country? Okay, so with regard to that, again, everything is going to depend 
on what does your specific policy say with your insurers. So if we have a look at the CFP broker's wording and the ProfNet wording, anybody covered under the ProfNet, if we've got any chiropractors who are with CASA or anybody under the SAS policy wording, if you are consulting with someone in a different country, the insurers have said, looking at telehealth, you may do that so long as you have a jurisdiction clause in your informed consent that you obtain beforehand, indicating that if there is any dispute or litigation that will happen, that they will submit to South African jurisdiction. And the reason for that, you know, you can imagine, it is a big risk and I was very unpopular. I actually put this to many of the associations saying, listen, are you happy for your members to be rendering services overseas? Because at the end of the day, number one, we don't know anything about the laws in a lot of other jurisdictions. We don't know if you're going to be um, infringing on their regulatory guidelines, uh, et cetera. And also without tanking RAND, sorry to depress everybody, hopefully you've all got some wine left to drink after this seminar or this webinar. Um, if you get a claim from an overseas person, and let's say that it's in pounds, a lot of people might think that you could only claim the value in South African RANDs, but in terms of our law, if somebody claims, and let's say, for example, they, they now want loss of income, they would claim the equivalent in their own currency. So you can imagine, you look at the road accident fund, what was one of the things that sent them over the edge? It was a claim from a foreigner. Um, so just please, everybody, everybody be aware that if you are going to be rendering services to anybody overseas, number one, you probably are dabbling in a jurisdiction that you don't necessarily know the, the legal rules. And number two, it's very important that you do have that um, clause in your informed consent that they do submit to South African jurisdiction. Perfect. Thanks, thanks Christy. I want to bring it back home again. And Neil, I'm going to throw a question to you. Give us a bit of the juicy detail. What do providers need to look out for when they choose a telehealth platform? Great question. And it's probably the question I, I get the most now. So I'm going to try as, as, as quickly and, and uh, efficiently as possible to probably give you five questions that you should ask. And they're probably not the ones that you think. The first one is the obvious one. It's got to be about data security. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what platform you're using. If you're not, if you are not certain of your data security, you shouldn't be doing this. You know, don't let, don't let your, your, your telehealth platform be the cause of litigation for you and your staff at a later time. I mean, that has got to be the absolute basis for, for, for starting this. And I mean, I, I, Neil, please. can I interrupt you right there? That's also really important from an insurance perspective. Please, everybody, have a look at your policies because your medical malpractice policy, or at least the CFP one, does actually exclude any form of cyber loss. So although you can get cyber security policies, it's not something that you can bolt onto your medical malpractice insurance policy. It is something you need to look at. Yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah. Absolutely, and thank you for bringing that point up because I'm part of a number of different groups and Facebook groups and LinkedIn groups and quite often you know, people will say, well, have you seen this platform? And somebody will invariably say, are they covered by your indemnity insurance? And, you know, one thing I find is that often people will say, oh, they, they've got end-to-end -end encryption. So they must be fine. I, I mean, end-to-end -end encryption is just the start of, of data security. I mean, for me, the gold standard of data security and, and data integrity are, are, is HIPAA laws, which are the American laws. But that is the benchmark. I mean, there's so much more just to end-to-end -end encryption. I mean, for one, one, for example, is that at no point ever should you ever store video. 
That is one point, part of HIPAA. I mean, HIPAA includes administrative, physical, technical requirements. And that has got to be the first. The second one is, how does the... Does everyone know what HIPAA is? So HIPAA stands for the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And it is the act, the piece of regulation to which all certainly uh, US-based platforms, um, and then you've got the EU one as well. Our poppy was based uh, on some aspects of it, but it is extremely stringent. It requires audits, which have to be done on a regular basis. Um, just for one, one of the things, for example, is that, I mean, any vendor, uh, that you might use, you should be able to ask them to give you the, some kind of partner agreement that holds the employees of a partner to the same high standard as they hold themselves to. That's one of the requirements. So it's extremely uh, rigorous, and, and rigorous and it's so important. You know, you just need one leak of data, just one. And can I can I butt in there again, Neil, with yes, regard to end-to-end -end encryption? This yeah. was another thing that went backwards and forwards for any of you who are covered under a CFP broker's policy, you know, initially, I think Dion maybe be, might be able to add something here, but initially the Allied Health Professions Council was incredibly clear that they did require you to use an, a platform which was end-to-end -end encrypted. And they were very specific as to the capabilities and specifications of the platform that you had to use. Whereas the Health Professions Council, there was actually quite a bit of dispute do, do I have to use something that's end-to-end -end encrypted? I mean, uh, Dion, maybe you can speak about the ethical duties that everybody is still obliged to, to follow. And if we look at the telemedicine guidelines, which were pretty old, um, you know, what, what they were saying, that it remains the practitioner's responsibility. But now, Neil, what about the fact that, what about if the person on the other side doesn't have much protection? when you, you could have the best protection in the world as the pr practitioner, but the other person on the other side has a computer from, you know, Noah's Ark. Well, I mean, you know, end encryption, but, you know, WhatsApp is end, WhatsApp is end-to-end -end encryption. And let us not forget that WhatsApp was hacked about six or seven months ago. Sure. Okay. You know, and, and we know, we did a bit of research a couple of, uh, about a year ago, and we found around the world, eight or nine practitioners are using WhatsApp. Mm. And I'll tell you why. And I'll tell you why, and this is going to bring me to my second point and the question that you need to ask. This is, I'm going to give you the golden gem of telehealth. There are two types of telemedicine. One is synchronous and one is asynchronous. Synchronous is a video call. Both practitioner and patient need to be available at exactly the same time. So like we are here, we're using Zoom and we are, this is synchronous. But the most, some of the most efficient users of telemedicine have got platforms that do asynchronous uh, uh, care as well, which means that you're able to extend care to a patient, but both people are not necessarily around at the same time. Give you a great example. I, I'm getting older. I pick up running injuries from time to time. My physio give, gives me exercises to do. She, instead of the two of us getting onto a platform like this, where both of us have to be available, she takes, she does the video, shows me the exercise, she attaches the video to her telemedicine platform, and I can see that at a later time. I can then redo that and can give her feedback. We're not on the platform at the same time. Now that's special. And, and, I, and why I love that is because it frees the practitioner up to see those individuals that they do need to see on a physical basis and still allows them to extend care to the others. So that's the second question you've got to ask is that, does my platform allow for both synchronous and asynchronous forms of care? 
The, the third one I'm going to give you is the question you should ask is, and this is one of the biggest frustrations I think I see with practitioners, and that is, I love telemedicine, but my patients don't, they just don't dig it. They just, they just phone me and WhatsApp me, et cetera. Well, of course they do, because they've been WhatsApping you forever for free of charge. Here's the thing. What is the, whatever platform you choose, there has to be some kind of offering to assist you to get you those patients on board your telemedicine platform. How do your patients find out about it? I mean, just by saying, well, I'm now on telemedicine, you know, your patients are not going to get into it. So there's got to be some kind of practitioner support, um, some kind of way of assisting to get patients into that system. So, I mean, that's my third one. And my last two that I'm going to give you is, you know, most of the time, and we see a lot of these platforms coming up, mostly video platforms. I think we make the grave mistake of assuming that patients are quite comfortable with doing video consults. Do you remember the first time we did a Zoom meeting? It's uncomfortable. You see yourself on the screen. You don't look as good as you think you should. Patients, and we found that patients are not always mad about a face-to-face -face -face video consultation. You need, I believe, that a, a comprehensive solution requires calling and requires text as well because there are times that, that, that call for that. And then finally, and this is the last question you need to ask, and it's a burning issue. How do I get paid? I mean, it is probably for one of the, this is why you do this, you know? And practitioners are, are, have traditionally spent a lot of time giving away free care. How do you get paid for your time and your expertise? There has to be an inbuilt function somewhere along the line that billing must be done. Um, because if you are using great technology to deliver care and they're not getting paid for it, it mm. sort of defeats the object. Can I, can I jump in there? I'd, I'd um, like to just talk about that billing, Christy, okay. as soon as you, you're done um, with your point. Okay. Yeah. okay. Um, something that I did want to mention, and please, everybody be very careful. I think that Neil makes a very, very good point about billing. But one of the things that we need to be pretty mindful of is establishing whether or not a um, telehealth consultation is actually appropriate in the circumstances because funnily enough, I actually had a conversation with one of our underwriters. He, he's an elderly gentleman. He's in his early 70s. And he said that he's got disintegrating um, neck, neck bones. And he contacted a physio and they were basically pretty insistent that no, telehealth was the way to go. And the gentleman I'm chatting about is quite cantankerous and he insisted that he actually needed manipulation. There was no ways that this was appropriate. So they ended that and found a physio who actually would do the necessary manipulation. And subsequently a person from the original practice phones up to find out what he thought of the telehealth consultation. So he clearly said not very much. And then he got billed for both the follow-up and the original session. You can imagine he wasn't happy. This is the type of claim that you might have. I think it's very important to establish from the outset is the telehealth consultation appropriate in the circumstances? And if that takes five minutes, yeah. not to go for it. Yeah. Yes. I think one of the key things that, that the HPC has raised from, a, from an ethical concern um, is around um, overbilling or uh, overservicing, possibly even more so. So uh, to Christy's point, it's critical that we apply telehealth in the right and appropriate uh, environment for the right and appropriate patient. Um, I think the, the uh, Allied Healthcare Professions uh, Council has, has, has most certainly explained that you can even ask your patient on the other side to, to take their own pulse and their own temperature and feed that back. So I think that's a, a, a lot more relaxed than what the HPCSA might look at it uh, uh, from their angle. 
um, but it's important that it's appropriate. And, and here, it starts spilling out into the billing side of things. Um, we have to be aware that the HPCSA has made it clear they're going to review their position once the, the state of, of, of disaster is completed and we're out of this. Um, but there's still, there's still a, a long tail to this, and I don't think it's going to just be because of the lifting of that. And, and, and we as healthcare practitioners need to be sure that we handle telehealth responsibly. Um, and, and one way to ensure that is we need to be sure that your engagement with a patient is a formalized engagement. Um, and this is where I have concerns again, where it's just an SMS or a, a, a message that goes through on your personal phone, is how do you actually then quantify that? Do you bring that into your billing system and your, your clinical notes? Um, have you got record of that interaction? So that if later on somebody queries that in questions, you can say, I billed you for this telehealth consult, um, and, and here's the notes that accompany that, and this is the time. These messages were sent. This is the time we had a phone call or a video call for, um, so that everything is, is, is aligned, and you've got uh, the evidence of that interaction. We know what, what happens in medical scheme reviews, um, and the same principles apply, whether it's telehealth or general billing. Um, those, those rules don't change. There was a question around whether medical schemes, in fact, pay for telehealth, and the, the answer is most certainly an affirmative. Um, they've been paying uh, GPs for, for even before the COVID time for, for tele, telemedicine. Um, they are paying 100% to psychologists. Um, when I talk about that, I think we're typically speaking about discovery and some of the others that, that have followed their lead. Um, and there are benefit designs around telehealth to empower that. So it's most certainly something that you can bill for and should bill for. Um, as a healthcare yeah. practitioner, you, you're providing your, your professional uh, engagements to that patient. Dion, um, just one of the things that came up, I don't know if you want to mention it, whether this is really basic, but I thought it was important for, for, from a layman's perspective, was just to be mindful that you still have to use certain codes when you are billing for that and that you can't bill for your time. If you've got an old lady who now takes two hours to understand what you're trying to get her to do, yes. Yeah. yeah. So just on that point, there's, it is important that you reflect your place of service code. Um, and when that's electronically sent through, there's a zero two place of service code that indicates it's a virtual consultation. Um, so that's important that you make sure that your practice management system is enabled to do that and that that is sent through to the medical schemes, uh, whether it's paper claim or electronic EDI submissions. Um, and then also be sure that uh, you, the, the, the actual codes in, in some disciplines, they pay for all of the codes, especially the consulting disciplines, um, like psychology, because you are consulting. Um, but in others, like uh, what some of the schemes are called physical disciplines, they're paying for a subset of those codes, not all of your codes. Um, and, and typically those that are more consultative in nature rather than uh, physical interventions with the patient. Dion, if I may just take two steps back. We were talking about the billing and claiming from medical schemes. But even before you see your patient, are you allowed to advertise that you can do telehealth? So, so I think the, the, the first step is to, to take, take a step back, especially when it comes to the Health Professions Council, is that people are often quoting uh, advertising and uh, making professional services known regulation off an old booklet that doesn't exist anymore. So, so it is important that we make sure that our advertising is not uh, misleading, um, doesn't cause unwarranted anxiety or distress to the public, um, that is not comparative in nature, that there's no touting or canvassing that goes with that. Um, and, and it's also important to understand what we mean by touting and canvassing. Um, uh, touting would be where, you, where you're putting forwards uh, 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 one element of your practice to try and gain other, other value to your practice. For example, a sign that says uh, free Wi-Fi um, is a favorite one that the, 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 the current acting registrar of the HPCSA uses on stage. Um, free Wi-Fi has got nothing to do with your services. Now you're luring people into your waiting room to, to, you, to go onto Facebook and then trying to sell them uh, clinical services. 
um, in my view, uh, telehealth is not is not a touting element. It's a it's a it's a it's a method. It's a mechanism of of engaging with your patient and providing services, um, and it's another place of service type of setting. So, you if you're advertising that you do home visits, you do office visits, you've got uh, a hospital uh, or you've got rooms, outpatients. Uh, tele telehealth is another element to that and complements your services. Perfect. Neil, I think I interrupted. Were you going to say something? No, I don't know. If, and if I was, I can't remember what it was. <laughs> oh, I, I think jump in there with home visits. No, uh, so, sorry, what, Neil, you go first. I'll tell you what it was. Because we were talking about billing. We still see this around the world, um, that the majority of, of telemedicine uh, interventions are often not billed for. Because they are, you know, they, there's going to be the situation where a patient may reach out to a practitioner and the practitioner says, look, I, I know what this is. You need to come and see me. Mm. This is not something that is appropriate for telemedicine. Mm. And obviously that's not charged for. But I will tell you, when, you know, that happens quite often. And I had a very similar experience to this about two weeks ago. And I, my doctor did ask me to, to reach out to him on, on the telemedicine platform first. And I did need to go in. But the experience at the end was, was fantastic. And I'll tell you why is that by the time I got to see my doctor, he already knew and he had insight into what my complaint was. Mm -hmm. So it cut down our face-to-face -face visit to probably 10 to 15 minutes, which, mm -hmm. which was about half an hour. But I mean, Dion's point is well taken. You know, be, um, in terms of billing, I think your ethics and your, and your experience would guide you in terms of whether um, telemedicine is appropriate or not. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Neil. Sorry, Christy, you, you were saying? Sorry, just two things. From the insurance side, um, one of the things on our policy is that the insurers are insisting that you have to use a recognized and secure platform. So yes, telehealth currently is covered for the period of the pandemic, for those who have asked, but it is subject to a number of conditions. And one of the main ones is it has to be a recognized, so not a fly-by-night. You know, Neil has mentioned how many are popping up at the moment, um, and it must be secure. So you would have to justify to the insurers that you have used and be able to have evidence that you've used a secure platform. And then just something with the mention of home visits. I don't know, Dean. I've seen something about home visits. And from what I understand, home visits are not allowed unless it's absolute emergency. I don't know whether that's for Allied Health Professions Council or Health Professions Council. I don't know if you want to say anything about that. Because there will be people who are... Um, vulnerable who perhaps don't want to come into a practice and this is again something for them you can't go and visit them at home yeah, yeah. so I think in general the, the ethics obviously allowing for home visits even prior to COVID is there you are absolutely allowed to and, and enabled to do home visits I think very often it's important to do that to rehabilitate and manage the patient in their home environment and ensure that they're ready to be discharged back home um, or that they are actually coping at home um, so it would be up to the healthcare practitioner to actually weigh up the, the benefit versus risk uh, to themselves, number one, and also to the patient, of course, um, and ensure that they follow all due um, uh, regulation around the level of, of lockdown that we're under, um, as well as um, managing uh, everything, obviously, from, from um, uh, uh, sanitizing, hand washing, and, and, and masks and so on. So, so there's other regulation that would come into that, and one would have to pitch and make sure that you're compliant with that. And then also, obviously, the territories you're traveling to actually go and see the patient. Um, Christy, you raised this morning in our conversation that uh, crossing a metropolitan line, um, are you allowed to do that? And that is obviously then again against the framework of the level of lockdown that we're in. So one has to consider all of those as well uh, when engaging with the patients. But I think just be careful because if I remember rightly, there is one of the councils has actually said home visits is not allowed unless it's actually emergency treatment. Yeah. 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 
Um, so Christy, I just think on your, on your previous point, I just wanted to loop back on that. So, so you're saying that um, uh, the medical malpractice insurance policy is impossible. You can speak to your own um, as, as, as obviously a, a position of authority is um, they do cover you if you're doing telehealth. And if they do, um, what is the questions around any excess payments that are, are, are payable for that? Is, is there additional risk to that? Okay, so at the moment, the insurers agreed without on the, on the um, CFP brokers policies not to ask for additional premium for people doing telehealth. They agreed to add it on, but they said, listen, um, we think that this is additional risk. And generally their position was when anybody wanted to do telemedicine, when a practitioner would come to them and say, listen, we want to do telemedicine, they'd have to fill out an individual application form, um, they'd have to pay additional premium, and the excess would generally be 10,000 rand. So when we negotiated the endorsements that would add telehealth, it was agreed that although we couldn't have the normal excesses which apply, and usually your first excess would be about 3,500 grand that you have to pay for your first claim during the year, they said that because they saw the increased risk, it's 5,000 rand for most of the practitioners that we do, except um, I'm going to be unpopular with our psychologists and counsellors. Um, unfortunately, their excess is a bit higher. It's 7,500 rand. Mm -hmm. Okay. And is there a way to manage those excesses? Obviously, it's a risk versus a, a cost um, a consideration. Um, is there mechanisms that people can do applications on specific systems to, to waiver that excess should their systems meet okay. certain so, criteria? So just to let you know that the underwriters did agree. They have reviewed um, Medici and the security documents and they have agreed that in the event that the insured or let's say a claim or a complaint arises out of telehealth they will reduce the excess to the normal excess under the policy um, if that uh, practitioner is a profnet member and was was using medici easy med at the time of the telehealth service so you know at the end of the day it's a saving Mm. I think it's important that because we've got quite a large forum and I think those who get their medical malpractice insurance, um, we know you get it through ProfNet, but that, I don't think that's the point I want to make here. There are many that are members of different associations and societies that are in fact getting covered by your policy wording, those 8,000 that Lonnie spoke about in the introduction. Yes. Can you maybe just list those associations and societies that you are offering the cover through the membership? Okay, so, so the ones when I talk about the CFP brokers wordings, um, for those of you who don't, who don't know me, it would be the Optometric Association, it would be the South African Society of Physiotherapy, it would be um, the SAAA, which is the audiologists. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just trying to think, there's not on this group, but we also do occupational health nurses and the biokineticists, sorry, one of, yeah. one of my favorites, Barca, the biokineticists, yes. There you go, there you go, all right. So, so I see there's, there's been some really interesting questions that have come, come through here. I just wanted to, to deal with one or two of them, if you don't mind, because uh, there was the one, I think, it, there, were, there were a few of them, and, and this one's come up a few times. The, the one is, what is the difference between telehealth and telemedicine? And, and actually, I, I just wrote an article on this for the ASIPA um, Association last week, so it's still fresh in my mind, so I'll give you the answer. Um, so you would think that they were pretty much the same because they very often are used interchangeably and people talk about telemedicine and telehealth as if they were the same thing and they're actually not. So telehealth is more of a, um, a collective uh, description and it includes all forms of remote care and that could be apparatus, it could be you've got remote um, blood pressure cuffs etc. Mm -hmm. That's that is that. Telemedicine is the actual 
uh, delivery of care uh, through a, a remote platform. So it's actually quite different. There's somebody else that's asked is Zoom and WhatsApp. Mm. Somebody said WhatsApp is uh, really great because it's easy to use. And that must be, I have to be honest, WhatsApp is probably the last um, solution that I, I may look at. It is easy to use, but it's certainly, and it's a great communication channel, but probably not for the exchange of clinical data. So uh, in my opinion, probably WhatsApp is, is not the best place to be going to. Um, I'll leave Dion to deal with Zoom. The question is, is Zoom safe to use uh, in, in terms of telemedicine? Hmm. I think there's a question there that's just come up that says, can we recommend a, a platform to use for telehealth? I think in, in this case, you're asking Turkeys to vote for Christmas. Um, <laughs> you can see who our favorites are and what we, who we've partnered. But um, Neil, I think what might be of value is if we put up a, a checklist, um, a physical checklist that people can run through, and maybe we can put that up on one of the sites and we can post that afterwards, and um, that you can then use and go through and check it and, and challenge the person who's, who's offering you a telehealth platform um, to answer those questions. And you can do your own assessment and decide from there. Is that something we can do, Neil? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually writing an article at present um, mm -hmm. uh, on exactly what you should be looking for and the questions you should be asking in terms of choosing a, uh, a, a telehealth solution. I'll be happy mm -hmm. to pass it along and then you can post it up. Absolutely. Fantastic. I think we'll drop it onto easymed.solutions uh, where, where you'll find the other webinars and stuff as well, just so it's an easy, easy to find spot. Um, can, I, can I chip in there with, with regard to Zoom? I have to show some, some independence here. So just to let everybody know that initially, again, on the CFP brokers policy documents, the underwriters came out very strongly saying they were against Zoom. They actually had internal communications saying that none of their staff members were allowed to use Zoom. There was a lot of negative press around Zoom. I don't know if you, if you, if everybody's seen it with regard to porn bombing that was going on. I think subsequently Zoom has upgraded um, certain security features. The questions have been asked, will the underwriters automatically exclude any claim that arises through the use of Zoom? And it's still a bit of a wishy-washy answer. You know, you'd have to prove that you maximize the settings on your Zoom to, to have proper um, safety of your patient information. Um, and also the underwriters initially did recommend certain platforms. Uh, Medici was one of them, but also Cisco WebEx, WhatsApp was recommended, and Microsoft Teams. But I don't know, yeah, mm. some of you, you all have your own experience and your own favorites. Sure. Um, I've noticed that various people and regulators specifically have made certain recommendations. Um, and I'm not sure if they're based on a full technical understanding of the requirements. Um, and, I, and, I, and I implore each of you to actually just as participants, do your own homework, to, uh, check against the checklist. Somebody's mentioned now as well that HIPAA's got its own checklist. We'll include that, of course, as well. Um, and, um, and, 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 and do your homework around that. Make sure that you've done your homework and that whatever platform you use, you're able to then bring in and ensure that your billing, your clinical notes, and the platform that you've used is, is, is aligned. Um, and that you, you ensure that you cover all bases. You need to be able to be sure that you, are, that you are accountable for that interaction and that it is done in a professional and a healthcare sensitive way. Where we must understand healthcare information on the, on the internet is, is more sought after uh, from hackers than credit card details. Um, it is very sensitive information, and that's why you'll see such an attack on those spaces. So, so please understand, it's not just the fact that you've got a patient and what treatment you've done, there's more to it than that. 
and uh, where patients' information has been breached and the Poppy Act kicks in, um, you've got a lot of work to, 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 to address that, that, that breach. So, so protect yourself and protect the patient's information. Absolutely. Christy, if I may just pose one last question to you. Yes. Um, do insurers pose any specific um, conditions um, in the insurance? Are there any restrictions there? Okay, if you don't, bear with me. I'm going to share, share a screen to answer this question, if I can now find it. Okay, um, sure. I'm just looking for what I needed, and of course, it's not going to be here. Um, just while Christy's looking for that, I just want to give quick one-word one answers on some of the, one-sentence answers on some of those that have come up. The one just around the ethics of treating in another country. Um, the, both the HBCSA and the allied HBCSA states that you can treat patients in another country, but be sure you registered at, with the regulatory authority in both South Africa and that country that the patient is in, because you're under the ethical rules and regulations of that country as well, the jurisdiction. So it's not just your malpractice insurance um, policy uh, wording, but also obviously the ethical rules. Um, and then there was a question on video storage. Um, the allied HBCSA says that um, and, I, and I reviewed the wording again yesterday and have been sort of in communications with the Chiropractic Association too on this, is that they're saying if you need to do video consultations and it has to be recorded. Now, one interpretation means says that you have to actually save the copy of that video interaction like we're recording this one now. Um, my view is that you need to record that the session took place and have robust clinical notes reflecting what was done and decided in that session. Um, to have to a save the, the the full data of those, you're going to go get into data storage challenges, uh, security challenges, um, and I think that that position needs further clari clarification. Um, the the HBCSA um, does not state that you have to have recordings of video, and I'd almost caution against that. If I had to go to a GP in a face-to-face -face contact um, uh, consultation, and he said there's a camera up in the corner there that's recording our interactions, I can tell you I'd behave very differently. And I'd be very concerned as a patient. So why would that be different in an interaction like this one? Um, so so, so the, the jury's out on that one, but uh, the allied HBCSA uh, would need to clarify their wording on that. Thank you, Dion. I'm going to give Christy a quick opportunity, and then we do need to wrap up because it is 5 o'clock already. Christy, over to you. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Can you see, that? Can you see what yes. I'm trying to, to share? Okay. So... With regard to the specific obligations, sorry, I can't see my, my face on the screen. I've just got the document here. So with regard to the specific obligations that you have in terms of your policy, please go and check your own policy conditions. And there will be something that have been added usually by something that looks like this, an endorsement, which deals with um, it adds on additional conditions that you need to abide by including the ones that you already have. So I'm not going to go through this whole thing. This is the one that I'm showing you at the moment is the one for ProfNet members. And I'm going to go through some of them. So, for example, I've highlighted these things. The underwriters have said that they don't want you looking at their um, requirements of you in isolation. They actually want you looking at booklet 10 of the guidelines for good practice and adherence to the provisions of the ethical rules, 27A of the ethical rules of conduct. So there's, there's other things that you need to be complying with. Um, and then notice this where it says the extension of cover will be subject to compliance by the insured. So if you don't comply with these conditions, there's just no cover. So a lot of it has been repeated out of the guidelines and regulations that have been published by the Health Professions Council. This one, I'm only going to deal with the Health Professions Council because obviously the Allied Health Professions Council has something different. But as was mentioned earlier, the Health Professions Council did come back and say, okay, you can now deal with new and existing patients. 
However, what we must bear in mind with telehealth is this, provided that such consultations are done in the best clinical interest of patients. That's really important. Um, then, we, then we need to look at number three, in keeping with existing health laws and regulatory requirements, informed consent must be taken from the patient and documented in writing prior to the provision of telehealth services. Again, that's important. Um, number four, the insured shall in advance provide the client with certain information, including information about the nature and objectives of the treatment services concerned, including the cost of telehealth treatment. So that's another important thing. You know, people may think, oh, because it's telehealth, I'm not coming into your practice. I'm going to end up paying a lot less than I would have if I came into your practice. And uh, a discussion needs to be had as to what you're likely to be billing them. Something else we mentioned, the recording. Neil indicated that he's against story, I, th I think, storing of recorded information. Please bear in mind that as far as I'm aware, if you're a chiropractor with the Allied Health Professions Council or you register with the Allied Health Professions Council, it is a specific requirement that you do have to record your sessions. That is not a requirement with the Health Professions Council, but in terms of the uh, conditions of contract, it does state that if you are going to record your sessions with your patient, you have to first obtain permission from them. So I won't read through that, that whole thing. Um, but again, it just comes down to, um, for example, maintaining the confidentiality. That is incredibly important. Um, if we look at number nine, sorry, Lani, you asked the question. There's a whole lot of things here. Okay. You need to wrap up, sorry. Okay. Okay. If you can just give me, I'll go to num number 11 and then leave it at that. Okay. So all electronic transmissions must be secured using generally acceptable data protection and authentication techniques and must also be stored and filed securely for no less than the time period following which claims relating to the service may become prescribed plus two years. So for, for those of you, what does that mean? You know, for may become prescribed. For those of you who don't know, there's something called legal prescription. And in terms of legal prescription, the general rule is that a person has three years from the date, not that you render the service, but from the date that they've become aware that they've suffered harm. They've got three years within which to sue you. That is called the legal prescription period. If they don't sue you during that time, you have a defense. If they bring it in the fourth year, you have a defense in terms of the law that you can plead that their claim has actually prescribed. Please bear in mind, any of you who are treating children or anyone who's lost their mind, um, that prescription does not run against minors. So if you're treating children, a child's claim only prescribes either one year after they reach the age of majority, or um, they also have the three years from the date of treatment, whichever give, or from the date that they become aware that they've suffered harm, whichever gives them the longest. And then you see all of this information that you have to still be, to be keeping, if you have a look there, A through to G. Then there's no cover for any IT-related risks, and the policy will not respond if the connection fails while the medical practitioner is providing the patient with advice, no matter what the cause of the connection failure is. So please, people, again, when you're discussing and getting informed consent, it's very important that people know that there might be a break in transmission, and you need to think about it beforehand. How are you going to deal with it if there is a break in transmission? Do you have the phone number? Have you told your patient, please keep your phone by you so that we can connect again if there is a break in the transmission between us? And also you need to think about how you're going to be billing that, that sort of thing. Something that I want to... Okay. Last one, last one. This, okay, this came up with this came up with the physios. 
is we need to bear in mind as well, they brought it up in, in connection with a child, for example, who might have fallen down on their bum and is now bruised. And now there's perhaps someone wanting to do video conferencing to show the part of the body to show that the bum is bruised. Please be very mindful of uh, potential infringement of pornography um, uh, regulations, you know, with, with doing something like that. It's really important that you don't, I'm going to stop, sh stop sharing here now. It's really important that you don't um, share parts of the body. I don't know if Dion has anything to add to that from an ethics point of view. Yeah. Uh, look, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot to talk about um, uh, there. I think we could possibly have a dedicated session purely on ethics okay. and, um, and, and record keeping. I'm hearing a lot of that. How long do you keep records? What records can you keep? Uh, can you forward on videos to the patient? How do you protect your own property when you're sending a video on? So thanks for that question. Okay. So perhaps we can put that on as one of the, what we'll do after this is accumulate all the common questions that okay. we haven't been able to answer and have dedicated sessions on that. No. Um, Lonnie, but I do, yes, Dion, I, I do believe we do. We have run out of time. We're over by six minutes, so I have to call it a day. But what I can really sense here is that, A, people are interested to get information. B, there's a lot of, there's a wealth of knowledge out there that I think people like Neil, Dion, yourself, Christy, is prepared to share with the audience. And guys, do remember that this is a series of webinars. It will be same time, same place, next week, Thursday. And like Dion mentioned right at the start, please log on to EasyMed.Solutions. There's a webinar section where you can physically go and register. So don't wait for the invitation this time. We had such an overwhelming response. So we, we're putting the driver in your hands and, and you can go and register. Um, we were thinking that, you know, we discussed a lot of the, the current telehealth environment today. So maybe one of the next topics can be the future of telehealth. And, and the other thing that we also definitely need to address is cybercrime and how can you be a little bit more cyber savvy and cyber smart so look out for the topics on the webinar page and and also for the the panelists we will definitely try and collate all the questions that you asked for us today and see if there's a trend and we might get some really key opinion leaders to join us for some of our future webinars um, i would just like to thank the three panelists from the bottom of my heart neil dion christie thank you so much for your time and effort today it's been absolutely magnificent for all the attendees out there. I really hope this has given you a little bit of food for thought and maybe just made you a little bit, bit easier, a bit more comfortable and knowing that there are people out there that can help you. So please contact us if you do have any questions. And like I said, we will answer your questions in a Q&A sheet that we will publish on the website itself. Um, also, great thanks, thanks to, to, to SpaceNet Global Group. I know we've got some of the board members with us today who joined us. And definitely for EasyMed and Medici, who literally just partnered for a magnificent telehealth solution. So guys, watch, watch the press for that. And please contact us if you need any more information. Um, that's it for me from today. Um, thank you, everyone, for attending. Stay safe, and we hope to see you soon again. Good night.